Well, good morning, church. You guys are way more responsive than the nine o'clock, so I appreciate that. And, uh, and we're still waking up at nine o'clock, but great to be here. Uh, my name is Dave Rhodes. I'm not the normal pastor here at Grace Monroe. Uh, I am the strategic director for the Grace Family of Churches. If you don't know, Grace Monroe is one of ten churches in the Grace Family. Uh, this movement that God started 40 years ago, um, and uh, Throughout the summer, we get a chance to celebrate what God is doing, not just in each local place, but across the family. You saw a video last week at Pentecost, and uh, we're joining in a summer series called 40 Stories, and we get a chance to jump into each other's pulpits and stages and get a chance to be exposed to lots of people around the family. And the idea of 40 Stories is that we're turning 40 years old as a Grace family, and the number 40 is significant throughout Scripture, literally 146 times the number 40 appears and it refers to often a season of trial or um, uh, opportunity of turning the next chapter, a season of testing or probation where you're moving from one chapter to the next and the 40 is significant not just that you make it through it but for what you come out of it with. Uh, so we're going to talk from 40s stories, stories that have the idea of 40 years or 40 days throughout the summer. And the idea is we take this journey is not just that we would survive it, but that we would come out of it with what we need for what's next in our journey. Uh, so today, um, we're going to be in Galatians chapter 5 to start. We're going to be in lots of different places. Galatians chapter 5 to kind of set the, the scene, and then we're going to jump to 340 stories that are going to help us think through what it means to be free. As you turn to Galatians chapter 5, by the way, if you don't have a Bible, you can raise your hand. We'll put a Bible in your hand. But Galatians chapter 5, as you're turning there, a little confession from me. I'm not a runner. Now, that doesn't mean I don't run. It just means when runners talk about running, they talk about the joy of running. Running is not a joy for me. I mean, when runners talk about running, they talk about hitting the runner's wall, but bursting through the runner's wall to experience the runner's high. Can I tell you, I have never experienced the runner's high. I mean, I, I don't burst through the wall. I bounce off the wall when I'm running. The runner's high for me is the moment I stop running. That's what I call the runner's high, right? Uh, and I'm the kind of runner that it's always a constant mental negotiation in my mind. In fact, I'm the kind of runner who's looking for a hole to step in so that I can break my ankle so I don't feel bad about not running, you know, for a while. That's the kind of runner that I am. But every year, you know, we gained a couple extra pounds, and for years, um, uh, the community that I was involved in together would create some fitness goals at the turn of the year to just kind of get ourselves back in, sh in shape. And one year, the community decided that what we were going to do together is we were going to run a half marathon. Yeah, that sounds awful, doesn't it? <laughs> That's what I said. But they were so excited about it. And to be honest with you, I had driven around our town and seen people with that 13.1 sticker on the back of their car. And I wanted one really bad. I, it never dawned on me I could just go buy one and stick it on the back of my car. But I thought, no, no, you need to earn this. And so we signed up for the half marathon and we printed out our training schedules and uh, we got ready to go. We paid our money. And I meant to train. Like, I, I really intended to train 
for this thing, but, you know, every day I'd bring my workout clothes in and the meetings would go a little bit long or I'd get distracted and I didn't feel like it. And before you know it, it's the day of the race and I haven't trained at all. But I'm thinking, you know what? I played soccer in college. I could just gut this out. It's only 13.1 miles. Just go down there and run it. And so we go the night before and we get all of our running swag that they give you when you enter, uh, enter these kinds of races. And then we go and carve up. And I did a great job carving up that night. You know, I felt like I was really winning on the carb session, you know. And then next thing you know, it's the next morning. And it's about, you know, six or seven o'clock in the morning and they shoot the gun for us to take off. And I'm sitting there with my buddy, David Reikley, who did train for this race. And so we take off the beginning of the marathon and we set about a seven minute a mile pace, which is cooking for a guy like me, right? You know, at this, especially at this stage of life. And, and so we get through mile one, you know, and we go through the, the water station. I'm just throwing water on my face like Rocky Balboa in that moment. We get through mile two, mile three, mile four. We get to mile six and I develop what they call a side cramp. And I'm thinking, this is not good. So I send Dave on. I said, well, you keep on going. I'm just going to slow it down back here. We go through miles seven and eight. When we get to mile nine and 10 at Greenville, South Carolina, where we were in the race, mile nine and 10 were straight uphill. When I got done with mile 10, I just decided to start walking. And when I did, my whole body started shutting down. Literally, I could barely move. If mile one was like seven minutes a mile, mile 11, 12, and 13 were like 30 minute a mile pace. There were old ladies with walkers passing me and uh, the competitive part of me wanted to tackle them, but I just didn't have enough energy to do it. And if you've ever been part of the race community, you know what's so great about races is at the end of the race, you know, the last mile or so, people come out and they watch you and they clap and people who have finished come out and they cheer on those of us who are struggling behind and they're clapping and I'm, I'm going through mile 11 and, and 12 and 13 and people are clapping saying, you can do it, you can do it, you can do it. But I'm looking in their eyes and what their eyes are telling me is, I don't think he can do it. I don't think he can do it. I don't think he can do it. And I struggle. I get over the line and I collapse. Vowed to never do that again. But the next year, we ran the same race. And this year, that year, I, I used a training method called Hal Higdon's training method that had you walk for a minute and then run for three minutes and walk for a minute and run for three minutes and walk for a minute. And it seemed counterintuitive to just going out there and running. But the interesting thing is, as I trained in that method, um, I, I had cut like 30 minutes off my time. And in those experiences, I learned a couple things about running marathons. When it comes to running a marathon, pace is as important as passion. Training is more important than trying, and attention is more important than intention. First marathon, it was all on passion and trying and intention. Second marathon, pace, training, and attention. And I bring that up this morning because following God is a marathon. 
And the same things that are true about marathons are true about following God. That too many times in our life, when it comes to living out the life that God's called us to live out, many of us are just trying to do that with passion and trying and intention. But that God is calling us to a different way that includes marrying pace with passion, training, and it's really a battle of what we give our attention to. In the book of Galatians, this is exactly what Paul is talking about as he writes his letter to a fledging and kind of floundering church in one of the most dangerous parts of the ancient world. Literally, it was Galatia on Paul's first missionary journey that he turns to go toward when John Mark says, I'm not going there with you, Paul. And he goes home to mom. And Paul establishes a church here in Galatia But behind Paul are a group of people who are kind of corrupting the church there. And so Paul's writing a letter to reestablish the Galatian church in the gospel. Because the Galatian church has become a kind of fractured society of different factions. They're fractured theologically. In regard to, do you have to have Jesus and the law? Or is Jesus just enough? They're they're, they're, they're fractured socially. Do I have to be a Jew or or can I be a Gentile? And what's it look like to follow Jesus? They're they're fractured sexually in regard to male and female. And so they got faction upon faction upon faction that is growing up. And Paul writes to reestablish the gospel. And for Paul... The manifestation of whether the gospel has been rooted is whether people are filled with the Spirit. Is there a sense that they're controlled by the Spirit of God? And the way that we know whether we're controlled by the Spirit of God is how free we live. So he says, I want you to be rooted in the gospel, filled with the Spirit, experiencing freedom. When you think about Christian maturity, it's probably not what you think about. But the test for Paul about how mature someone is is how free that person is. Listen to the way that he says it here in Galatians chapter 5. He says, So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what's contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what's contrary to the sinful nature. They live in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step or in pace with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. So Paul's establishing the gospel And the gospel for Paul is not just about forgiveness, it's about freedom. 
A lot of times when we think about the gospel, we simply think about forgiveness. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul's writing about the gospel again. He always roots his letters in the gospels because he doesn't want to just control people's behavior. He doesn't want behavior modification. He wants character formation. And so he roots it in the gospel, and he says in Ephesians chapter 2 that we were all dead in our transgresses, trespasses and sins when, when God came to us in Christ. So God does offer forgiveness. That's the first part of the gospel. But in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, he says, but you are God's workmanship, God's masterpiece created to do good works, which God prepared in advance for you to do. So it's not just about forgiveness, it's about freedom. Now, I know when we talk about freedom today, I need to take some time to define that because there's some pretty false ideas about what freedom is. We live in a society today that will tell you that freedom is the ability to do anything you want to do. Can I tell you that is not what freedom is? If that's what freedom is, I know a lot of people who are doing anything they want to do that find themselves in incredible captivity. Freedom, here's the big truth for today. Freedom is not the ability to do anything you want to do. Freedom is the capability of becoming who God always destined you to be. Let me say that again. Freedom is not the ability to do anything you want to do. Freedom is the capability of becoming who God destined you to be. So here in Galatians, Paul is rooting them in the gospel. He's calling them to life in the spirit, which manifests in freedom. And what freedom looks like is what he calls the fruit or harvest of the spirit that starts with love and ends with self-control, or what some have called self-mastery. And it's this idea of self-control or self-mastery that I want to journey to in 340 stories today because I think it's an important piece for what it means for us to follow God. Now, it's interesting because when he talks about the works of the flesh, he says there's a conflict in our lives between flesh and spirit. And he contrasts that with the plural idea of works of the flesh. So there's all these things that you're doing that are, are connected to your flesh. But if the works word is plural, the fruit of the spirit is singular. In other words, there's not lots of different fruit. There's one fruit, harvest of the spirit. And here's what it tastes like. It tastes like love and joy and kindness and gentleness and the freedom of self-mastery. In other words, there's not like nine different fruits. It's one fruit, kind of like some of you got your coffee today but your coffee's not really just coffee, right? It's got cream in it and sugar in it, maybe caramel in it. Before you know it, you wonder whether there's any coffee in it to begin with, right? It's all one coffee, though. And this idea here in Galatians of self-control, or the King James translates it temperance, or what many commentators would interpret as self-mastery, it's the same word of a athlete who is disciplining their body for what they're gonna do. In other words, instead of their body reigning over them, they reign over their body. It's a word about empowering you to be who God has made you to be. And the freedom of stepping into that rather than settling 
for lesser versions of yourself, which you and I have a tendency to do. And Paul says, as you give yourself to the gospel in the power of the Spirit, the freedom and harvest is that we become more like who we were designed to be. And he's contrasting that with the law, which he said is powerless to do that. Here's what it's like. He's like, uh, what if, if today I told you, don't think of a banana? What are you thinking about? A banana, right? This is what the law does. But if I want you not to think about a banana, I can either say, don't think about a banana, or I could say, think about an orange. Because if I tell you to think about an orange, you're not thinking about a banana anymore. Paul's saying, here's the thing about the law. The law is powerless to set you free because it just reminds you what you're not supposed to do. He said, instead, live concentrated, put your attention, train with the Spirit, walk in step with the Spirit. And when you're walking with the Spirit, I don't have to tell you don't think about a banana because you're thinking about an orange. It's a totally different way of life. So this harvest of the Spirit starts with love, and and oftentimes, you know, when you think about it, you know, all of these are descriptions of love, patience, kindness, peace, joy, and it's almost like you can't have peace without patience, you can't have kindness without love, you can't have goodness without joy, I mean, they're all connected, it's all one fruit, so you and I don't get to pick and choose, like, which ones, if you want to know whether your life is driven by the Spirit, it should taste like all of these things. And if you want to know what it looks like to live by the Spirit, it means that you're not reigned by anything other than God. And so I want to talk to you about this journey. We're talking about 40 stories. We're going to look at three stories today. And in that, I want to invite you into the gospel that comes in the middle of the battles that tend to rob you and I of our self-control or our self-mastery, that tend to tempt us to settle for a lesser version of ourselves. These three battles are the battle of our cravings, number one, and our cravings talk to the battle inside of us. Our circumstances, number two, and our circumstances are about the battle outside of us. In conflict number three, which is the battle between us. See, I gotta tell you, I'm perfectly in control except in those three situations. When I need something, when something's happening outside of me, and when something's happening between me and somebody else. And if I'm not careful, these things are gonna tempt me to settle for a lesser version with a lesser power, with a lesser gospel, and a less free life. So I want us to hear the gospel in each of these again this morning and turn to God in the middle of it. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 4. Here's our first 40 story today. It's Jesus in the wilderness. And remember, in Luke chapter 3, Jesus has gone into the waters of baptism, and in the waters of baptism, the Spirit has descended on him like a dove, and the Father has spoken from heaven, this is my Son whom I love, and him I'm well pleased. He gets his identity in the waters of baptism. 
verse 1 of chapter 4 of Luke, it says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert where for 40 days, there's our 40, 40 days he was tempted by the devil. Now skip down to verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. So he goes into the desert, guided by the Spirit, led by the Spirit, full of the Holy Spirit, but he comes out of the desert in the power of the Spirit. Which means what he deals with here determines the power of his life. All the miracle stories of Jesus happen on the backside of the desert. The desert is the transitional journey between the baptism and the power of his life. And it's in the desert that Jesus faces several things, but one of these is a temptation to give into his own cravings. Here it is, verse one, Jesus full of the Holy Spirit returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days and at the end of them he was hungry, which I think is the greatest understatement in the entire Bible, right? He goes 40 days, he's a little bit hungry. I go four hours and I'm famished, right? Here's the temptation. The devil said to him, notice this attack on his identity. If you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man does not live by bread alone. Jesus is in the desert for 40 days. And he's going to come out with the power of the spirit. But the first battle that he's got to go through is the, the battle of, of his cravings. He hasn't eaten for 40 days, and Satan says, if you are the Son of God, turn these rocks into bread. What's the temptation for Jesus? I want to suggest to you the temptation for Jesus is for him to become his own provider. Because he has needs, and those needs need to get filled, and so Satan comes to him and says, you can't really trust your father to meet your needs, so here's what you need to do. Take your needs, take your cravings into your own hands, and you meet your own needs, Jesus. Now, I gotta tell you, I, I'm not a very good faster. People talk about going on a fast, which is like going without food or something for a season. People talk about, you know, how close they get to God. I get mad at God when I'm fasting. <laughs> um, Dallas Willard said this. He said, if you are hungry when you are fasting, you are not fasting, you are still learning to fast. If that is true, I've never fasted a day in my life, right? <laughs> because when I'm fasting, that feels like all I'm thinking about is the food, right? I'm not eating, right? And I remember a while ago, I felt like the Lord was calling me into a seven-day fast, a week-long fast, and it got to be about Wednesday, and I hadn't really had anything but just fluids, and I thought, man, I am dying here. I need to put something in my stomach, and so I was going to go up to the gas station and get like a Gatorade or a Coke or something to put in my stomach, and when I got to the gas station, on the door of the gas station was an advertisement for chicken wings. And I love chicken wings. I could eat chicken wings every day of the week. I'm like smelling the poster of these chicken wings. And then it dawns on me, Dave, these are gas station chicken wings. Like these aren't even good chicken wings. They're not even good gas station chicken wings. Here it is. I'm ready to sell <laughs> my soul for a vat of chicken wings, right? We laugh about that, but how many times does our cravings sabotage our freedom? And here's the temptation of cravings in regard to identity. The temptation is I become or I think I am whatever I need. So if I need money, I am poor. 
If I need a relationship, then I am single. And that becomes, my need becomes a defining reality in my life. And before you know it, I'm settling for a lesser version of myself, bought into a lesser freedom, because I think I just need to take my own needs into my own hands and meet them. Jesus responds to Satan. He says it this way. He says, uh, Jesus answered, it is written, man does not live by bread alone. In other words, Jesus is saying, I choose to believe my father is my provider and he will give me whatever I need. That I don't have to give into my cravings, that those cravings don't have to define me. Doesn't mean I deny my need. My needs are real, but what I choose to do is place those in the hands of the Father and trust a good Father to give me what I need when I need it instead of just simply sabotaging my life. How many times have I sabotaged my own freedom just following my cravings? But it is in this moment that God is trying to build faith. Jesus says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Faith, here's what faith is. Faith is hearing the voice of God and trusting the heart of God enough to act on what you've heard. It's saying, I'm gonna choose to live by the word of God, by what God says, not just his written word, but his active word, his speaking word in my life, and I'm gonna choose to trust him. All of discipleship is this battle of trust. Will I trust God? It's moving from unbelief to belief in every area of life and trusting that my Father will provide for my needs. Temptation, I am what I need. But what can God build in this season? He can build faith. And you know that faith is built when your self-mastery trumps your self-indulgence or your self-gratification. Your self-control trumps your self-gratification or self-indulgence. Number two, circumstance. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 17. If cravings are about the battle inside of us, then circumstance is about the battle outside of us. And I love this story in 1 Samuel chapter 17 because it's a story that we all know familiar, familiar with, this story of David and Goliath. And remember, before this, Israel has chosen for itself a king, and it's chosen Saul, because Saul looks like what they think a king should look like. They're following after the ways of other nations. But in chapter 16, God makes his choice for king, and it's a guy named David, and David doesn't, on the outward, exactly look like a king, but God sees what other people don't see. That's 1 Samuel chapter 16. By the time we get to 1 Samuel chapter 17, there's some circumstances that are going to happen in David's life, and the circumstances are going to reveal to everyone outside of David what God sees inside of David. So in 1 Samuel chapter 17, you've got Israel on one mountain, you've got the Philistines on the other mountain, there's this giant, this eight-foot tall huge guy named Goliath who comes out every day. Verse 16, here's our 40 story. It says, for 40 days, the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. 
And for 40 days, as Goliath takes his stand, Israel is cowering in fear. In other words, their circumstances are robbing them of who God has called them to be because Goliath looks huge. But David walks on the scene, and Goliath, by the way, his name means, one way you could translate it is revealer or exposer, and everywhere Goliath goes, he exposes things. So he exposes Saul for the fraud king that he is. He exposes Israel for their fear, but he's also going to reveal or expose David. And here's what David says. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, you're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a boy, and he has been fighting man from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or bear came and carried off the sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair and struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. The uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord, here it is, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the, he, from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. So David walks on the scene, same circumstance that the people of Israel are in, they're cowering in fear, but David sees God is near. They see Goliath as an obstacle. David sees Goliath as an opportunity. Why is that? Because this is the battle of circumstance outside of us. And here's the battle. The question for your and my life is, are we going to see our circumstance through God, or are we going to see God through our circumstance? In other words, are we going to face our circumstance, and whatever we're looking at in our circumstance will determine what we believe about God, or instead, will we see our circumstance through the lens of God? So many times in our faith, we're robbed of our freedom because our thoughts about God are dependent upon our circumstance. So when our circumstance is good, God is good. But when our circumstance is broken, we think God is broken. And we live controlled by our circumstance. David sees in a very different way. He chooses to see a circumstance through the lens of God. He's experienced the goodness of God. He knows the goodness of God. The Lord has demonstrated that story over and over again. He's delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear. This uncircumphilistine will be like one of them. In other words, David sees his circumstances through the lens of God. The temptation of circumstance, if the temptation of cravings is I am what I need, the temptation of circumstances, we start to believe I am whatever it is that I'm going through. And so when our life falls apart, we start to think we are that consequence or we are what has ever happened to us. In the Bible, there's two times when your life falls apart. Sometimes your life falls apart because of bad decisions that you make. That's called consequence. When I go and choose my own way, oftentimes serving my own cravings, there are circumstances that come into my life and result of that that are called consequences. 
but if consequences when your life falls apart because of bad decisions that you make, then suffering is when your life falls apart because of good decisions that you make. Sometimes Goliath enters your life not because you've chosen brokenness, but it feels like brokenness has chosen you. That's called suffering. You're living your life trying to do what's right, but all of a sudden you find yourself in circumstances that look bigger than you. And if you're not careful, you'll look at God through your circumstances, and when they are broken, you start to think that God's broken, and the circumstance starts to rule and reign over you. But if God is building faith in our cravings, then in our circumstance, God is building fortitude. Because we dare to look at whatever that we're seeing, and we choose to see it through the lens of God and the goodness of God. And what that means is that if it's not good yet, then God's not done. See, if your life is a sentence, the subject may be weak, the verb may be violent, the direct object may be overwhelming, but the last, sen- the last word of the sentence belongs to God and it's good. It means that our circumstances don't have to define us and that God is not the author. Let me say this clearly. God is not the author of your pain. God is not the cause, but he is an opportunist in the middle of it. So instead of just delivering you quickly, sometimes he allows you to go through it because it's in that circumstance that you see what's inside of you that you didn't know what was inside of you. In other words, we often talk about the faith of God or the faith, of, uh, the, or the faith in God or faith in Jesus, but what about the faith of Jesus, the faith of God? God has more faith in you than you have in him. And in the middle of the circumstance, he is revealing to you what you didn't know what was inside of you, but Goliath is bringing out David. He's going to demonstrate to everyone else what's inside of you that he's seen that maybe no one else has seen until you went through the circumstance. You are not your cancer. You are not your disease. You are not... the overwhelming, broken thing that you are going through. But that overwhelming, broken thing, if you allow it to do its work and see it through the lens of God, might reveal the unbroken thing that is inside of you. Temptation is I become I think I am, what, other, what, what I'm going through, the, what God's building is fortitude, and what it reminds me of is the freedom of self-mastery is greater than self-deception. Not just self-indulgence, but self-deception. Job is written as a corrective to what's called Deuteronomic theology. If you read the first five books of the Bible, there's a general truth that's called, you know, it's big words, Deuteronomic theology, and basically it's like this. If you follow God, 
your life will be blessed and good. If you walk away from God, your life will end up with unblessing or cursing, desperation, despair, destruction. And generally, that is true. But the book of Job is written as a corrective to remind us sometimes you follow God and your life falls apart. And sometimes you cannot follow God and it can look for a season like your life is all together. And so Job is sitting here and his wife is just looking at God through circumstance. She says, God, Job, just, just curse God and die. But Job is choosing to worship God in the middle of it but it's still a struggle for him, the struggle of circumstance. And at first, in chapter 13, what he thinks is, a, he, what he needs most is an umpire. If I can just get someone to call fouls in this circumstance. Anyone watching the NBA Finals? No? Just me? <laughs> watching the NBA playoffs? Have you noticed that every trip down the court, the offensive team believes they got fouled? If you don't believe me, watch it tonight. The defensive team believes no foul has been committed, right? Every single time. It's a great commentary on life because we live in a world today when you're playing offense, you think you're getting fouled, and when you're playing defense, you think no foul has been committed. It's the commentary on the world that we live in today. And we think the way we can solve it is we just need an umpire. If we got the right person to call fouls, then we could be free of our circumstances. In chapter 16, he moves from wanting an umpire to wanting an advocate. If I just got someone to speak up for me, if I just got someone to plead my case, then everything would be all right. But by chapter 19, he says, I don't need an umpire. I don't need just simply an advocate. Here's what I need. He says, I know my redeemer lives. What I need is a redeemer, a goel, a kinsman redeemer, someone to live my life for me. This is the power of the gospel that our circumstances don't have to define us, but instead the power of the gospel and the, and the work of the spirit working through us reveals to a world who God has seen us already to be that we didn't even know we were until the circumstances reveals it. David in chapter 17, this 40-day journey reveals the king that God had seen in him that the people didn't see in him, and now David's beginning to see in himself what God saw in him all along. Cravings battle inside of us. Circumstance battle outside of us. Lastly and quickly, conflict the battle between us. Can I tell you, I'm in perfect self-control until I drive home from the Atlanta airport. <laughs> Before we lived in Atlanta, we lived in Pauley's Island, South Carolina. I'd always fly back in because I travel a lot, probably about 120, 130 days a year. I'm on the road. And I'm flying back and forth everywhere. And uh, when we lived in Pauley's Island, I'd fly into Myrtle Beach, and I had about a 30-minute drive home to Pauley's Island, and I would feel my body start to relax as we drove toward this sleepy little beach town. That is not what my body feels driving home to Snellville from Atlanta. <laughs> Literally, in the 45 minutes to two and a half hours that it takes me to get home, I am angry <laughs> because I've been in conflict the whole time and my agenda has been in conflict with other people's agenda 
And before you know it, you know, I'm out of control. I'm doing things that I didn't think I was capable of because the conflict is ruling and reigning me. How many times does conflict rule us of our freedom? This is especially true if you are a leader because leadership will put you in conflict. Someone said this, if you don't, if, if, you, if you wanna make everyone happy, don't lead, go sell ice cream. Because here's what happens in leadership. You have to make some decisions and do some things, and here's the reality that you're looking at. But oftentimes, the people that you're leading, their purview isn't as wide as yours. They're not privy to all the information that you know. They don't see all the things that you do. So they're looking at your decision from this purview here, but you're looking at that through here, and it puts you in conflict with one another. By the way, it's why I empathize as a leader with God so much because God has the greatest purview. And we have such limited purview, which is why God is the most misunderstood being in the universe. Because his purview is the biggest and we don't understand decisions that he makes because we're looking at them from right here. And if we're not careful, we'll be in conflict with God, but it's the truth of the way that we manage conflict with each other because, you know, I've got this purview, you've got this purview, or you've got this purview and I've got this purview and we're in conflict with one another. And here's what conflict tends to do. Conflict tends to make us demonize each other. And once we have demonized each other, we can dehumanize each other. And when we dehumanized each other, we can destroy each other. But God's doing something different in conflict. In Deuteronomy chapter nine, one more 40 day story, and I promise it'll be real quick. Israel, uh, Moses is recounting Israel's history. And God, Moses went up on the mountain in the book of Exodus as he was leading people out of Egypt to the promised land. And for 40 days, he was up on the mountain with God and God gave him the 10 commandments. He comes down and as a leader, he comes into conflict with people because they are worshiping a golden calf and Moses takes the 10 commandments and he just breaks them. But this leads to another 40-day journey. In verse 25 of Deuteronomy 9, it says, I lay prostrate before the Lord for 40 days and for 40 nights because the Lord had said he would destroy you. I prayed to the Lord and said, O sovereign Lord, do not destroy your people, your own inheritance that you redeemed by your great power and brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Overlook the stubbornness of this people, their wickedness and their sin. Otherwise, the country from which you brought us will say, because the Lord was not able to take them into the land he had promised them and because he hated them he brought them out and put them to death in the desert but they are your people your inheritance that you brought out by your great power and your stretched arm in other words as Moses comes into conflict with the people he chooses not simply to dehumanize and destroy but instead he prays for their forgiveness See, if the temptation of cravings is I believe that I am what I need and what God is building is faith and in, and in circumstance, I have a tendency to believe that I am what I'm going through, but in there, God is building fortitude, then in my conflict, my temptation is I am whatever they say that I am. And so if they say this is what, well, I'll just become that person because they're saying it anyway. 
But it's in this season of conflict that God is building forgiveness if you allow him in you. And it's in forgiveness that we see that self-mastery is greater than self-protection. So not as only self-mastery greater than self-indulgence or self-gratification, but also self-mastery is greater than self-deception, but now self-mastery is greater than self-protection. In other words, the freedom that God invites us into is that we don't have to be identified by our conflict, our circumstance, or our cravings, we don't have to substitute a lesser version of ourselves or become a lesser version of ourselves, but through the power of the Spirit and God building faith, fortitude, and forgiveness in us, we get set free to be who God has always seen us to be. But I don't know about you, but when I'm in this 40 days, what I want God to do in my cravings and in my circumstance and my conflict is deliver me quickly. And instead, he takes me on a journey. I love the way that Peter says it in 2 Peter chapter 9. He says, God is not slow the way that some people understand slowness. Instead, God is patient because his purview is that he wants the whole world to come to repentance. See, we want God to deliver us quickly, and we want God to restore everything today. But the Bible says the reason that God doesn't deliver us quickly sometimes, and the reason that God hasn't just set everything right today, it's not because God's slow. It's not because God's aloof. It's not because God doesn't care. He's not slow, he's patient, and in his purview, he wants the whole world to come to repentance. So even the circumstances that we're in, or the cravings that we have, or the conflict that we enter into, if we'll allow it to, will reveal God through us so that the whole world might come to repentance. So if you feel like you're in one of these battles, I want you to see it today as an opportunity for freedom and an opportunity not for God to be slow, but in his patience. Use your life to demonstrate freedom in a way that calls others to the gospel. See, here's the thing I know about. When your life falls apart, or when your life is going well and you worship God, People may pay attention, but when you're following God and your life falls apart, people can't help but notice. When you have needs and you surrender those to God instead of taking those into your own hands, when you go through circumstances where life falls apart or conflict, it's who you become in the midst of the journey that God can use to bring others to the gospel so I wonder today what is robbing you of your freedom and how might the gospel be established the power of the spirit leaned into so that through your freedom other people could find faith some of you are here today and maybe you you 
you, you've never let the gospel root itself in your heart. And so your only capability is either to give into your cravings, your circumstance, or your conflict. You've settled for a lesser identity. And today God wants to restore that, redeem that, tell you who he's made you to be. And he wants the power of the gospel to set you free for that. Wherever you're at, may the mark of your life be the freedom that comes from the power of the Spirit rooted in the gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you desire to define us so that we do not need to be reigned by lesser versions of ourselves or lesser things than you but that through you we find our true selves. So God, in the midst of conflict, circumstances, and cravings, make us, reveal in us who you have designed us to be and set us free. We love you, Lord, in your name. Amen. We're going to sing one song today to finish us up. And uh, as we do, just invite you to respond to God today. Uh, we've got the elements of bread and uh, juice or wine at the, at the front. Just, just, just reminds us that in our cravings, God meets our needs. That in our circumstance, not even the worst circumstance, that this symbolizes the death and blood of Jesus, the body and blood of Jesus, that God is making good in the middle of that. And even in the midst of the conflict, he's creating peace. So as you take the, the bread and wine, or in the back, I think we have some gluten-free options with juice. As you take the elements today, remember, these are, this is a way that we remind ourselves who God has called us to be and that we aren't slave to craving circumstance or conflict. As we worship, we sing to God about who he is and he speaks back who we are. So let the words remind you of who God is and who you are and find freedom in worship today. So as these guys lead us, the bread and wine is open. The, uh, we're going to worship from the stage, but... I encourage you, wherever you find yourself today, surrender it to God and listen to what he says and who he says you are.